1988, I was standing at the entrance of an ancient cave in Tekoa, surrounded by seven-year-old shepherd boys smiling and asking for candy, their flocks of sheep and goats grazing all around. The dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem had asked me to say a few words about Tekoa, and I thought, Tekoa what? So I looked it up. At that time, it was a Palestinian village in the west bank of the occupied territory, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, only three miles southwest of Bethlehem. You could see it up on the mountain there, just in the distance. When it was time to speak, I simply said, I'd like to read one sentence from the Bible, which will explain the significance of this place. The words of Amos, who was one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Oh, until that day, I hadn't realized how close Bethlehem and Tekoa were to Jerusalem. No wonder Amos was such a pain to the rulers and priests there. Living that near, he saw and heard what was going on, and it wasn't pretty, politically or religiously. Reminds me a little bit of what's going on in our country. Amos' words are instructive. Alas for those who are at ease in Zion, who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches, anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Sounds like an accurate description in our own day as the richest 1% in the United States now on more additional income than the bottom 90%, much less what is happening in Israel against the Palestinians in this day. But remember, when it comes to global income, we are the 1%. But we're good people. One of my favorite quotes from a diary in the early years of Massachusetts. Quakers came to New Bedford to do good, and they did well, and therein lay the problem. Even Paul's first letter to Timothy warns people to be careful of wealth. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith. Now, to understand Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus, you have to understood, understand that the Jewish idea of heaven came out of a main theme of the Hebrew Bible, the concept of justice. If God is just, there must be accountability, even after a person dies, where justice finally happens, especially if it had been denied on earth. A person who had everything in life but was corrupt, self-centered and thoughtless, has to be balanced with a desperately poor, good man who never had a break. Remember, Jesus was speaking to lay teachers called Pharisees, the good guys of his day, as they tried to make sense of Torah law. Jesus may have been a Pharisee. If he wasn't, they sure liked him a lot because he was doing exactly what they were trying to do as well. 
that was unlike the Sadducees who followed the law to the letter and, according to Jesus, missed the point. A good example came from my brother-in-law, who is British, who grew up in Golders Green, just outside of London. He was part of a Jewish community there. And because he was not Jewish, the men there on Shabbat or Sabbath would say, Gareth, come over here and in my left pocket is some money. If you'll take it out and go buy four theater tickets for us and keep the change. And then on Shabbat, he would say, uh, Gareth, could you reach into my pocket and get my keys to the house and open the door and turn on the lights for us? And here's a little tip in there for you as well. Now to me, in our day, that's kind of stupid. But that's what the Sadducees were trying to do. The Pharisees were not like that. They were trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with all this stuff? Now, the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible unpacks the parable so well that I'm going to quote it at length. It's much better than I had written. It says this, The parable has two parts, an earthly scene and a scene in the afterworld. Poor, lame, ulcerated Lazarus was laid at the large gate of the palace of a rich man who lived in luxury of the finest clothing and food. Lazarus longed to eat whatever fell from the rich man's table, where bread, not napkins, was used for wiping the fingers. I didn't know that. Even the street dogs, unclean animals, nosed the helpless beggar. Death called both men and reversed their situations. Lazarus carried by angels to a place of honor nearest Abraham at a heavenly banquet. The rich man found himself tormented in flames in the underworld. In Jewish belief, such good and evil people could see one another, but their places were separated by a great chasm. Lazarus nowhere speaks in the parable, but the rich man called to Father Abraham to send Lazarus to cool his tongue, which Abraham rejects. Because justice required the reversed role, and because the chasm could not be crossed. Then send Lazarus to my five brothers. Nope. The brothers have ample teaching from Moses and the prophets. And because not even one from the dead would make them repentant when they ignored God's revelation in the scriptures. The parable emphasizes three points. Warnings to the selfish rich. An eventual evening up of fate for rich and poor. That a miracle like resurrection will not bring repentance if the teachings of God are not heeded. End of quote. So, 2,000 years later, what are we rich Americans to make of this parable? From the perspective of Lazarus on the other side of the chasm from poor nations, I'd like to describe our situation. The United States is the richest nation in the world. A litany of all the evil things happening in our country right now would take too long, but to name a few. Bigotry against non-white people and people who are not Christian. Imprisoning refugee adults, teens, and children in unsanitary prisons run by private enterprise for profit. Separating children from parents. 
accepting massacres by military-style weapons designed not to hunt but to kill as many people as fast as possible. Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, Odessa, to name a few. So what have we become? When does silence become complicity? Now, as most of you know, I believe in the total separation of church and state. No prayer in schools. That belongs in the home, synagogue, church, and mosque, etc. But it doesn't mean that we citizens cannot confront the state when injustice is being done in our nation. As Christians, justice, which remember is the baseline of love, is our job. Jesus was killed for a political act. We, the church, must not remain silent in the face of governmental wrongdoing. There is accountability for us as well as for the governments we elect. Our choice in this moment, are we going to be identified with the rich man and his temporary life on earth comfort or with Lazarus and eternal values? I believe it's that serious in our country, in us ourselves. In a timely article in the last issue of Episcopal Life, the bishop, dean, and canon of our National Cathedral in Washington wrote, as leaders of faith who believe in the sacredness of every single human being, we proclaim that the time for silence is over. We must boldly stand witness against the bigotry, hatred, intolerance, and xenophobia phobia that is hurled at us, especially when it comes from the highest offices of this nation. We must say that this will not be tolerated. To stay silent in the face of such rhetoric is for us to tacitly condone the violence of these words. So, in the spirit of Jesus, reflecting prophets like Amos, calling for justice and care for the least of these brothers and sisters, we Episcopal Christians need to raise our voices locally and nationally against injustice. In good conscience, we can't stay above the fray on our nice couches. Time to reach out to care for the ladresses who reside at our gates, who would be satisfied with even the scraps from our table. We need to feed them, bandage up their sores, lest we be judged by our own faith to have missed the point and experience the great chasm separating us from the justice and goodness, grace and love of God. And those actions, living with integrity, working for justice and healing, this is where we find meaning and experience healing for ourselves in the spirit of Christ.